This episode is brought to you by The Message, a new podcast series from GE Podcast Theater. Hi, Nikki Tomlin here, and I'm the host of The Message. I'll be following a team of elite cryptographers as they decode a highly classified radio transmission. To sum it up, extraterrestrials. The Message on iTunes. How Your World Works is sponsored by Stamps.com. Buy and print official U.S. postage using your own computer and printer and save up to 80% compared to a postage meter. Sign up for a no-risk-free trial and a $110 bonus offer when you visit Stamps.com and use the promo code WORLD. That's Stamps.com, promo code WORLD. This is How Your World Works. I'm your host, Kevin Dupsick, and I've got two guests with me in the studio today. Our first very special guest is a novelist slash journalist slash ethicist whose latest book, Die Again Tomorrow, came out last month. Kira Peikoff, thanks for coming in. Thank you for having me. And my second guest, who's not quite as special because she's here so often. That's so mean. You, we really value you. We invite you back <laughs> over and over. That is, of course, Jacqueline Detweiler, Popular Mechanics Senior Editor and host of our sister podcast, The Most Useful Podcast Ever. Hi. We've got three stories to discuss today. The first one is the story, Kira, that you wrote for us about a new approach to the fight against cancer. Then the second two stories are both about things that fly into space. Balloons from the Macy's Thanksgiving Day Parade and Neil Armstrong's spacesuit. Uh, and then last but not least, we're going to play another round of Stupid or Amazing with a product that could be useful for the Thanksgiving Day Parade, depending on how you approach it. Um, but first, actually, Kira, I wanted to talk about your story. This is from the November 2015 issue of Popular Mechanics. And it's about uh, a new technique for attacking cancer that's centered, I guess, at the Center for Molecular Oncology at Memorial Sloan Kettering here in New York. And the story we have, we gave the title Exceptional, and I thought maybe you could explain why that's a fitting title. Sure. Great question. So in the past, cancer drugs had typically been given to cancer patients who had a certain type of cancer, like a drug for breast cancer, a drug for lung cancer, et cetera. But many of the times, these drugs that were in trials and experimental would just fail. But Every so often, this really strange pattern cropped up that a couple of uh, very bright and perceptive doctors caught on to, which is that some people actually responded amazingly well to these seemingly failed trial drugs, and their cancers just went into remission, shockingly. And that's why we titled the story Exceptional, because these people had an exceptional response to the drugs that were considered no good. So somebody realized, okay, we should actually look at these patients who, who are having this, you know, it seems like it's an outlier, but it's actually like a really positive outlier. Let's, let's figure out if there's something we can learn from that. So where do you go from there? Once you've had that realization, what's next? So what's next is luckily we now have the technology to sequence the entire genome of a cancer tumor, which means examining every base pair in that tumor's DNA. Just like in humans, we all have 20,000 um, DNA uh, genes cancer tumors have the same. So there, up until about 2010, it wasn't possible to look at every single letter of every single gene. But now this technology has come about, and so it was basically a convergence of realizing some drugs worked on cancer and realizing the technology was available to try to figure out why. And I suspect that's actually pretty tricky. You don't just like look at a list of letters and you're like, those are the ones. No, it's quite tricky. In fact, um, one of the first times in, um, I guess around 2010, the researcher who was in charge of doing this experiment, uh, he told me that it took 
I think it was six computational or five computational biologists, six months to actually unravel the entire genome and try to pinpoint the so-called misspelling or mutation that was responsible for this exceptional responder's amazing recovery. And they ended up finding it and realizing, like, bingo, this is a huge new potential way to target cancer. So now that the Center for Molecular Oncology is open at Sloan Kettering, what's kind of the pro- like if you're a cancer patient do you do you like volunteer for a study like this what's actually sort of the process now so they're now making it routine that if you come into Sloan Kettering with cancer they're aiming to give you a, a new panel of testing called the impact test which screens you for 341 possible mutations that they know exist and can underlie specific cancers and if you're lucky enough to have one of these mutations they will put you on what's called a basket trial which means it's a possible way for you to try an experimental drug for your mutation. It doesn't matter so much anymore what kind of cancer you have, whether it's breast or lung or something else, as much as what your underlying mutation might be, and then that's how they're going to match this, their potential new drugs to your treatment. Um, if you don't have any of those mutations, though, uh, then you're basically in a still kind of unfortunate situation where they don't know why it happened, and they're still making progress on that front to try to figure out more mutations that they can test for and screen. Is, the, is that test going to be adopted at other hospitals around the country also? That's a good question. I, I know that Sloan Kettering is really on the forefront of this and rolling out to all patients that come through their doors. I'm not sure exactly how advanced the other hospitals are around the country that are treating cancer, especially because there's a very tricky interplay of both regulation and, and insurance coverage for this, since it's not yet a standard of care. Many insurance companies aren't um, covering screening for cancer genetics yet. So until it really becomes accepted, there's, there's, you know, it's unclear whether other hospitals and patients will be able to access it in the same way that Sloan is doing it on a trial basis. So did you come away from reporting this thinking this is the beginning of something totally new and exciting? Absolutely. I think it's thrilling what these people are into, not only Dr. Solid, but Barbara Conley, who's up at the NIH, looking for, um, you know, based on what Solid did, looking for exceptional responders. She's opened this new trial, which I think is great because it's involving um, much more of the country than just Sloan Kettering, in which any doctor, any um, oncologist who sees a patient have an exceptional response to a trial chemo drug can report their findings to the NIH, and that person's uh, tissue can then be taken, analyzed to find out, is there a pathway in this person's cancer that could have been the result of um, why the drug worked. And then there's going to be a whole database of these people so that in the future, potentially, uh, Dr. Conley told me in two to five years from now, those experiences can mm-hmm. then start to prospectively inform treatment for future cancer patients. Well, that's great. So even if like the impact test that they're using at Sun Kettering, even if there's kind of some roadblocks to using that everywhere, this is something that is national that will be, you know, that doctors can learn from each other around the country. Hopefully, as long as people participate and send in these exceptional responders and they get a great database, I think it's all about getting that database to be robust enough that we can actually learn something and generalize more for future patients. Okay, so let's take a break real quick to hear about one of our sponsors. This episode is brought to you by The Message, a new podcast series from GE Podcast Theater. Hi, Nikki Tomlin here, and I'm the host of The Message. I'm going to take you into an elite cryptography think tank and check it out. Their top project right now is to decode a highly classified radio transmission from the 1940s. Have you listened to it yet? 
Not yet. Uh, we're having a discussion about that. But if I offered you the chance to listen to it right now, uh, sounds like a no. Well, they don't really know what this is. Voices, music, breathing. But you know, I'm not gonna mess with that thing. To sum it up, extraterrestrials. Subscribe to The Message on iTunes. So the moment is here. The Macy's Thanksgiving Day Parade has arrived. People of all ages from all over the country gathered in the wee hours of the morning today to make up this group of band members. Okay, so let's move on to something lighter, namely helium. Oh, God. Really? (laughs) Really? All right, so Jackie, uh, you actually looked into this um, also in the November issue, uh, and this is about how the balloons at the Macy's Thanksgiving Day Parade are filled. And I I actually have to say, so I've been in New York for one year, and last year my mom came to visit for Thanksgiving, so I went up to the, the, I guess, the staging area where they fill these up the night before the parade. The weather was terrible, and they, like, kind of, they put you into pens, basically, and you have to walk in a circle and see all the balloons, and it's, like, the least fun way to see a giant snoopy slowly yeah. inflating but i'd never thought about the fact that the helium i don't know that there's not just like a, a valve in the ground they plug into right yeah you know i mean i think that you get really used to uh, in this country you turn a tap and there's water there you turn you know you turn the oven and there's gas and you can light it on fire so then when there's uh helium is around all the time and you see it in supermarkets you can buy balloons um but it's actually really complicated and i was editing this story um which is just there's seven. You get seven hundred thousand cubic feet of helium. Seven hundred thousand cubic feet. That's a lot of helium. Um, and so it's the way they get helium. The way it happens. It's kind of all over the world. There's mineral deposits, natural gas deposits in uh, places like Texas and Kansas, Algeria, Indonesia, Norway. Um, and so what they, do, <laughs> yeah, what they do is they they drill down and they pull out the natural gas, which is mixed with the helium gas, and then they cool it until the natural gas liquefies. And so then you've still got the helium. Cause helium helium is one of the um, the coldest. They actually use helium to cool MRIs to keep the magnets from overheating. Um, oh, really? So it's a really yeah, it's a really useful element. Um, and so they cool the, the natural gas. MRIs or giant or giant Snoopy of, balloons, whichever yeah. you want. Um, and then what they do is they they ship it to the U.S. They ship it to for this particular event. They ship it to a natural gas facility uh, uh, called Lindy Industrial Gas Company uh, in Bethlehem, Pennsylvania. And they put it into these containers called cryo vessels, which are so cool. Uh, they have five layers of anti-magnetized steel or aluminum, <laughs> and then they've got the and so on the outermost level levels between the steel between the layers of steel they have liquid nitrogen that keeps it pretty cold, and then there's a vacuum an airless vacuum between the other layers, and okay. then you get to the helium in the center, which actually has to to stay liquid. It has to stay at negative four hundred and fifty two point two degrees Fahrenheit, which is really cold. That's really cold. That's really cold. And so even though it's in there, it still it starts to uh, absorb energy a little bit from mm-hmm. the heat outside. And so uh, it starts to do that state change thing where it's gradually changing into a gas, but it stays the same temperature. Yeah. And so you've got a mix of that in there. And so then what they do is they attach basically a hose to it, 
uh, and they suck out when when they're ready. You know, when it's yeah. Thanksgiving time and all the all the all the Christmas stuff is already in stores. Yeah. Um, they put um a manifold on it. They put they attach a, a hose and they suck out some of that gas and run it through a compressor. So now it's not liquid, but it's compressed gas, and it's really, okay. um, it's it's really tight in there. I think it's uh. So when they fill the tube trailers that come to New York City they put about 3,000 pounds per square inch. <laughs> and then they have volunteers, volunteers that, that, uh, that let this out into balloons. Wait, and so it's just driven in on trucks? It's driven on on trucks. And actually, we were trying to figure out if there's any kind of security, because you'd think, you know, but I guess people don't steal helium, because there, there isn't. Somebody's got a reason to steal helium, right? I mean, uh, we, even if it's just for the thrill or to speak in a high voice for a long forever. time. For, yeah. for you and all of your progeny for the rest of time. Yeah. Yeah, well, so hold on. So we put the helium in balloons. Then when we're done, can we get they, it back? They vent it in. What they do is they vent it into the atmosphere. Um, and actually, I know it, it does seem it seems wasteful. I um, I mean, I love I love parades and I love the Thanksgiving parade. I love Snoopy. But you wonder there's yeah, there's got to be some way to suck it back out. Right. I yeah. mean, maybe but the thing is, you probably need a compressor of some sort. And I don't know that you can move those around very easily. So it may be a question of how much energy or, you know, whatever are you wasting getting the compressor <laughs> to where you can suck the energy out of the balloons. Although maybe they could just send the balloons back to Bethlehem, Pennsylvania, and just keep the parade, <laughs> make the parade longer. I don't know. I have a question. So when helium gets really scarce, what happens? Like, what, will we feel any effects of that in certain industry or? I think, well, I think what will happen, when it gets uh, scarce enough, I assume that we'll stop using balloon, helium Yeah, I mean, balloons. parties will be a lot but less fun. But will it actually affect, like, Anything truly important? Yeah, I, MRIs? I mean, yeah, MRIs definitely uh, would be the the big danger. I would think. I know that it's used for uh, some other industrial cooling, um, because the, you know, the, if if you're trying to get something extremely cold and you need it to be stable, and it's mm -hmm. it's helium or it's hydrogen, you want the helium because hydrogen's not particularly stable. Um, so, I don't. I, unfortunately, I don't know enough uh, industrial applications to be able to say exactly how we would feel it, but I think that it would become uh, obvious, and the first thing that people would probably do is eliminate the superfluous uses of it. Let's take a quick break and hear from one of our sponsors. Okay, so by now you know Stamps.com can help you save time by avoiding trips to the post office. But maybe you're concerned. What about my favorite post office? Well, let me assure you that it'll be just fine by telling you about the second life of one of my favorite post offices, the Old Main Chicago P.O., in episode one of a series I'd like to call Profiles in Postage. The Old Main Chicago Post Office was built in 1921, and it's got a big hole through its middle because the city plan called for an interstate on the site. Today, the only people in the building are drivers on the Eisenhower Expressway. It's been vacant since 1996. But that hasn't kept it from a healthy second life on the silver screen, most notably starring as the bank in the opening bank heist in The Dark Knight. So don't cry for the post office. Cry for the time you waste going there. And right now, Use our promo code WORLD to get this special offer from Stamps.com. A four-week trial, up to $55 in free postage, and a digital scale to automatically calculate the exact postage you need. So don't wait. Go to Stamps.com, and before you do anything, click on the microphone at the top of the homepage and type in WORLD. That's Stamps.com. Enter WORLD. The Smithsonian Institute, on the 46th year anniversary of the first moonwalk, they launched a Kickstarter campaign that they called Reboot the Suit. They were asking for $500,000, and it was to help conserve the Neil Armstrong spacesuit that he wore on Apollo 11 when he took famous first steps wait, because it's falling apart. Wait Why? a minute. Wait a minute. Why is it falling apart? Yeah, I'm so confused. I thought, I mean, a, a spacesuit goes to space. 
and can't handle Earth? <laughs> like, why? <laughs> well, so there's this. There's actually like what I found out was a oddly obvious answer, which is that when NASA built the suit, they were just thinking like, we've got to get these guys to the moon and back. They weren't thinking people are going to want to look at this for 50 more years. How can will the suit last for people to look at and remember the amazing thing we just accomplished? So they built a suit out of materials that were perfect for what they needed to accomplish, but that are having a tough time with an environment that's wearing them down just like everything else. So a couple of examples of what's going on. For example, they chose a mix of natural and synthetic rubbers that had a lifespan of six months. And they knew that when they put the suit together. So um, I talked to two people at the Smithsonian. One was Kathleen Lewis, who's the curator of international space programs, which might be the coolest job I can think of. Yeah, that's a cool job. And Lisa Young, who's an objects conservator. And one of the interesting things they told me was that they actually had to wait until the last minute to order the suits to be made, because if they made them too early, they would start degrading before they actually even got up into space. That's amazing. So what they have going on are things like the rubbers on the suit are degrading. They do this process called off-gassing, where they actually give off hydrogen chloride in the form of a gas, and then that damages other parts. There's uh, corrosion. So this happens to every metal on Earth, right? There's aluminum parts on the suit. Um, for example, on the wrists, uh, where the gloves connect, and also on the buttons on the front of the suit, and those are corroding. So they set up this Kickstarter campaign. They asked for $500,000. They ended up getting well over $700,000, just because people were so enthusiastic for this. And they're using it to go through and try and solve each one of these problems. How did they solve it without basically tearing the suit apart and putting it back together? Yeah, so they so there's kind of two answers to that. One is that they have like a pretty big collection of spacesuits, so they can they can look at multiple suits, which is nice. Um, for example, the aluminum corrosion they're trying to solve on the gloves. She told me they have I think like 200 pairs of gloves. So they you know it's which is nice also because then when they figure this out, they can apply it to a lot of spacesuits. But the other thing is that, um, so Lisa Young had her background um, working in conservation. Her specialty was rubbers. So they can actually like look at these materials that are used other places and run tests. So for example, uh, with corrosion, they're drawing on materials that have been developed for military, industrial, and commercial uses to remove, um, to slow down oxidation. So they can look at uh, chemicals that have already been tested to do these things and then see which ones will work on the suit. Oh, cool. For like, for like ships or... I don't know, spaceships, things like that, fighter jets? Yeah, so I mean, um, like, yeah, so ships, for example, you know, any metal that's in, like, the salt environment. Yeah. That's a big problem. Cool. Um, and the, the other thing I actually think is really cool about this that I talked about with them is the whole idea of conservation so that they're not trying to make the suit as it was when it was brand new, like when they first had it made up before Neil Armstrong ever took it into space. So one obvious thing that's really cool to see if you go see the suit is there's moon dust all over it. And they're not trying to remove the moon dust um, which are actually pretty hard because apparently the moon dust is like kind of sharp and really embeds into space. This suits. is the craziest thing I remember reading from when I read your story <clears throat> is that moon dust is sharp because you think dust like dust is soft and fluffy and usually has carpet fibers in it in my house. Um, but <laughs> I mean, it's not, sure, you know, you said it was embedded in the suit. And now I have a whole other respect for how terrifying it must be on the moon that there's just these really sharp particles of dust just flying at you. Well, it's because there's there's not a lot to wear it down to smooth edges. Like you think about like soft stones on earth, right? They're around water or something where there's just continuous work on their surfaces to smooth them out on the moon with a very thin atmosphere. That doesn't happen. Um, but it is scary, right? It's a little I mean, like sharp you, particles flying. Right. Around. Like you yeah. jump, you, you're like, yeah, I'm on the moon. And you like jump one of those really big moon bounds 
and then <laughs> you just add the dust you kick up just kind of like shards embeds of shards rock of, all over you yeah embeds itself in your suit yeah. the moon's trying to kill you yeah well i mean the suit's crazy so they also one of the things they talked about is that so they're going to display it they want to keep it on display for people to see so they have to build a mannequin to hold it up in a way that's you know that's safe for the suit because if you you know bend it in certain ways that introduces problems but the suit doesn't unzip all the way, so the mannequin has to be built inside it. So displaying this thing is actually pretty hard. And also, because of the corrosion issues, they can't actually like attach the gloves. So the mannequin has to, in a cool way, hold up the suit and then hold like the hands near where the uh, hands would mm -hmm. be, but not connected. So the suit, they actually told me to take a long time like just for the astronauts to get into. Similarly, pretty hard to build a mannequin inside of it. Right, especially because you're trying not to damage it while you're doing that. So the idea is, if you want to go see this, there's an exhibit called Destination Moon that's going to be opening in 2019, which is the 50th anniversary of the moon landing, and it should be done in time to go see it then. Can you can you remind us on the 2019 episode of How Your World Works? I'll put it in my calendar right now. Okay. Will it be in a zero-gravity room? It will not be in a zero-gravity room. It's going to be in, like, a special case. <laughs> Dang it. I guess I'm not going then. <laughs> that's it. You're, you're done with the Smithsonian. <laughs> All right, well, so the last thing we're going to do today is play a game of Stupid or Amazing. Kira, I don't think you've been here for one of these before, but what we do is we find something online that might be somewhat controversial. They often tend to be. So the subject of today's game is The Drinking Jacket by Zane Lamprey. This is a jacket where they actually did incorporate kind of everything you might need in order to drink at the Macy's Thanksgiving Day Parade. The zipper is a bottle opener. There's a pocket on the chest that's actually a neoprene beer koozie. On the one arm, there's a pocket for your ID and money. The sleeves are drinking mitts, so you fold, you pull it out over your hand, and it's like if the if the beer is too cold, it's warmer. But they're also slip resistant, so you don't drop it. <laughs> and the jacket is only seventy five dollars, which I think is kind of amazing. Um, oh man, uh, the foldable drinking mitts. I can say as somebody, if, you know, if you're at a barbecue, that does happen. Your hand gets cold because you're holding a beer. That's pretty great. But otherwise, it just kind of seems like a regular jacket, doesn't it? It's got like it's got pockets. You can always wear gloves. Oh yeah, right, gloves. Too. I didn't even think about that. Yeah, but then you got to remember two different articles of clothing. Uh, how drunk are we getting here? I mean, I really, I feel like, <clears throat> I feel like this uh, drinking jacket lends itself to like real serious drunkenness. Like here's a zip pocket for your ID and money because you know you're gonna be so <laughs> drunk you're just gonna throw that anywhere. And then I mean, like slip. Slip resistant drink grips. When have you ever just dropped a beer? <laughs> like, I don't know if that happens. So let me approach this a different way because I actually think this is pretty amazing. Just from a style standpoint, I mean, like, is this a jacket you guys think looks okay? Would you wear it? No. Um, I have Not worn I jackets. I have worn jackets like that while running, but I wouldn't be drinking while running, so I probably wouldn't wear it. I wouldn't wear. It, I, I wouldn't think, wear. It I actually think now. it's like a fine looking jacket. I wouldn't. I mean, I wouldn't spend a lot of money on this jacket, but. For looking like a normal jacket, it has a lot of nice functions. I feel like a lot of times when we talk about things that carry our drinks for us, we end up with something like the beer helmet, where you just look like an idiot. But this, you actually look pretty normal. But this has so many pockets, I wouldn't remember which was which. So I feel like I, everything would just get lost. I'd rather just have a purse and gloves. Well, you only need to carry money in your ID. Simple. And then drinks tucked various places. There's also a flask pocket, I think. There is a flask pocket. But I mean, mo I feel like there's a lot of jackets that have a, a zippered interior pocket. But is True. it a bottle opener? There's no, it is not a bottle opener, but you could put a bottle opener in there. 
So I feel like unless it comes with a diaper or something that's just fully lined, like so you don't even feel anything, what's the point of <laughs> imbibing like so much at once unless you can really get out of where you are? Yeah, but this, I mean, that it's a really good point is if it's New Year's Eve and you're in Times Square and you're freezing, it's not, the hard part is not sneaking a quick drink from a flask. I'm pretty sure a lot of people do that. The problem is that you're penned into a corral and then if you got to pee... It's going to be, you can see the porta potty, but it's going to be, you got to climb over 45 people to get there and then wait in line and then come back. There's, this jacket's not solving that problem. And who wants to go to a porta potty ever? Yeah. Okay, so you're, you're saying stupid. I think it's stupid. You're saying stupid? Yeah. I'm still saying amazing. I'm just impressed that they thought of everything and it still looks reasonably like a jacket. So despite my best efforts, we've decided the drinking jacket stupid two to one drink a jacket stupid fail well on that note <laughs> i'm gonna go drink by myself in a corner because my <laughs> vote lost thanks so much for being here guys it was, it was great it was great so that's our show higher world works is produced by jack dylan we'd like to thank sarah bentley and andy bowers from panoply please subscribe to our show on itunes and while you're there leave us a comment we'd love to know what you think you also shouldn't forget to check out our sister podcast, The Most Useful Podcast Ever. And if you want to read more about what we talked about on today's show, you can check out our website, popularmechanics.com slash podcasts. At popularmechanics.com, you can also subscribe to the print and digital editions of Popular Mechanics for just $13.99 for a year. I'm Kevin Dubsick. Thanks for listening. <laughs>